you recall, as Paul opens this letter to the Second Thessalonians, uh, he kind of talks about. Uh, he's already talked about one aspect of judgment, and that is a positive aspect of judgment. And that is that the Thessalonian, the persecution that they are going through, and the fact that they've been able to persevere through this suffering, really is a judgment of God upon them in a positive sense, and that it affirms them as being true believers in Jesus Christ. You may recall from last Lord's Day in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says this, This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, this week, we seek, side of the, the, in a sense, if you want to think of it this way, the negative side of judgment, the side of judgment that where God is condemning someone. And we pick up here with verse 18 that these people that he is condemning are the people that are persecuting the fledgling church of the Thessalonians, but also those who reject God and those who, quote, do not do, I'm sorry, do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the two sides of judgment here. Leon Morris comments, just as it is true that in a righteous thing with God to bring believers to salvation and blessing into his kingdom, so it is a righteous thing with him to bring punishment to those who persist in courses of evil. So it is Paul's intention to use this text that we're looking at this morning to encourage the Thessalonians who are being persecuted but in his doing that, he also give us one of, one, gives us one of the most uh, complete uh, teachings on the final judgment and on hell itself. So my hope today is that we will be both encouraged and challenged to consider the terrifying justice of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do look to you, uh, and I just confess before uh, this precious congregation my fear and trembling and uh, handling this passage we thank you, God, that it is our principle to preach through whole passages of Scripture and not just to pick and choose those that make us comfortable. And this is one of those that both is a blessing to the believer, but also a terror to the unbeliever. And I, we just pray, God, for the abiding work of the Holy Spirit to take these words to apply them to our truth. And Lord, for those unbelievers who may be hearing this message, I pray they'd get saved. I pray, God, that you would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, and they would come to know you. Bless us now as we look at this wonderful, terrifying passage of Holy Scripture in 2 Thessalonians. In Christ's name, amen. Again, we are looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 this morning, and I will read that in its entirety, and then we have uh, two headings uh, for that particular text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to, the, to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed." 
As we look here, you might find your home group helps. Matter of fact, I think you're going to need your home group helps uh, probably this morning because the, uh, the outline is not exactly linear. And I borrowed this actually from another source because I thought it was the best way to kind of separate these two kind of justices. But we first of all see God's justice brings retribution to unbelievers in verses 6, 7c, and 8 through 9. And then God's justice brings about relief to believers in verse 6a, 7a through b. And verse 10. So first of all, God's justice brings retribution uh, to unbelievers. It's interesting, again, uh, as we are looking at this context and looking at this sermon, a sermon that probably uh, many people would want to avoid both preaching and listening to. I was... uh, my attention was called to a story from Sinclair Ferguson. He tells a story of some years ago, a royal princess of England was departing from a cathedral service and spoke to the dean. Uh, the, the priest that's over a cathedral is called a dean in Anglican circles. He spoke to the dean and says, Is it true, dean, she asked, that there is a place called hell? The clergyman answered, ma'am, our Lord and his apostles taught so, the creeds affirm so, and the church believes so. To this, the princess replied, why then in God's name do you not tell us so? Well, I will not have that said of me or of this church. If it's in scripture, we're going to preach what the church is supposed to know from Holy Scripture. So uh, as uncomfortable as some of these aspects are, that's nonetheless the truth, and we need to be under, uh, understand that principle and be motivated to help those uh, come from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He says here, it's only just for God to repay uh, with affliction those who afflict you. Again, the world wants to think of God is love. Now, is God love? He absolutely is love. God is love. Literally, you could define God by love. But what is also equally true is God is wrath. God is wrath. And you really cannot understand God as love if you don't understand the principle that God is also wrath. Tim Keller says this, the Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying its peace and integrity. And and we think about this, even just thinking in a personal situation, how much respect would you have for a man who refuses to defend his family from danger? The love that he has for that family should motivate him to defend that family from danger, at matter what cost might be. And yet we expect God just to sort of wink at sin and to wink at injustice and that kind of thing. But if you've ever been a victim of injustice, if you've ever been persecuted, if you have been from perhaps one of those nations where the church has suffered severely at the hands of evil men, this is a text that actually brings great promise and great hope. He says he's going to repay, repay with affliction those who, uh, who afflict you in the sense that, that those, those who, are, who are causing trouble are going to also receive trouble because God is, in fact, going to be the defender of his people. We saw this, right, with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He was rampaging through the church, destroying people. And when God appears to him, when Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was, he was personally affronted, personally offended. He was going to vindicate and defend his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. Psalm, 1, Psalm 17, uh, verses 7 through 9 says this, Wondrously show thy loving kindness, O Savior, to those who take refuge in thy right hand, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. 
from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. Uh, so, so in a sense, we are considered God, the apple of God's eye, the pupil of God's eye. Zechariah warns that he who touches God's uh, people touches the apple of his eye. To persecute the church of Jesus Christ is to like poke God in the eye. Would God not be just in, uh, in, in dealing out retribution to do those? He says here it's not just, it is only just. Of course, in other words, this is a self-evident truth. And we know this intuitively, don't we? We, we all groan for justice. We want fairness. We want uh, th- things to happen uh, where, where bad people are punished and good people are rewarded. Well, we can trust God to do that, whereas we can't always trust men to do that. Jeremiah 32 says this, that God is great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to the way of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. I remember a friend of mine who was in Columbia, he was an undercover police officer. And he said one time he was had to appear in court as the undercover police officer. He was posing as a drug dealer. Uh, and as the court was going on trying to arrest this other drug dealer, God sees all. He has perfect knowledge. There is no evidence that he has missed. There is nothing that he, that he does not understand. He is the perfect judge. We can trust him in his love and in his wrath. But again, people want to emphasize the love of God, but a lot of times they don't understand just how important the judgment of God is. Yale theologian uh, Miroslav Volf, who, who survived the Croatian wars, the terrible Balkan wars of some years past, says this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. It is the comfort of God's final justice that helps people to embrace the command to never take vengeance out because we are to leave room for the wrath of God. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, from Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Without this knowledge that God will take care of those things, you will end up with a cycle of vengeance, 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 tribal hatred, tribal hatred, family feuding, family feuding, over and over and over again. As we seek to bring about the justice that we feel like God is not bringing about. Go back in just even recent human history in the last hundred years. Nazism and communism both denied the sovereignty of God and they committed unimaginable atrocities against people because they thought there doesn't matter. God doesn't see. We have the power of God and so we have to, uh, you have to have in some ways gone through a trial, a tribulation, a difficulty to want to cry out for this kind of justice. As some of y'all know, back in the days when I was uh, in, in seminaries, many years ago when our children were little, we actually had a murder in, our, in the front yard of our house. Uh, and uh, Nancy gives me a call. I come over from CIU uh, immediately. But basically the short story is there was a man who would, uh, whose wife had told him he was going to, uh, she was going to leave him. Uh, and uh, he said, well, meet me in front of my mother's house, which was across the street from us there, and uh, I'll give you back your car, and I think they suspected something was going on, and anyway, the wife came with her mother to bring the car to the man. The man ended up probably trying to abduct the wife or something like that. He kills his mother-in-law right there, right in front of our house. The brother suspected something was going on, so the brother pulls up, and there's a gunfight down Lincoln Street. Two blocks away from Elmwood Avenue, the busiest street in South Carolina. No thought of anybody else but themselves. 
And then I get there, there's literally crime scene tape across my front yard. You can't make this stuff up. I get in there, the children are all together, Nancy's together. Uh, there, there are some neighbors that were in there together and everything. Of course, the children are sort of shaken. Uh, and uh, we talked and we prayed for a little while. And people were talking about maybe the children need to go through counseling or something like that. I went out and talked to one of the police officers. I said, what happened to the bad guy? They said, oh, he's dead. His brother killed him right up there at the intersection. The interesting thing was this. I came back and I said, children, the bad guy is dead. And they were like, oh, okay, okay, good. Justice had been served. They need not fear this guy anymore. What he did to somebody else was done to him. You see, we've destroyed that uh, in, our, in our process in, in the United States where it takes 30 years to bring someone to justice for murder and that kind of thing. But I saw it that day, just how important this principle is for these innocent children. And they never struggled. They didn't have nightmares or anything like that. They were literally 20 feet away from this gun battle in our front yard. But justice had been served. God took care of it, and it was done. He says here, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven, this idea of reveal, this is where we get our word apocalypse from. It means a revelation, an unveiling, and an uncovering. This is not Christ's entry into the world. Christ is already over the world. But when he came the first time, he was veiled in flesh. When he came the first time, his own did not receive him. But when he comes back, he is going to be revealed. That same word is used of a statue. Have you ever gone to an unveiling in a museum of a statue? Is used of a statue that's covered up with a tarp or with a curtain and then is pulled away so that you actually see the statue. The statue's been there the entire time, but we just didn't have eyes to see it. This is Christ who is there now, who is here now, who is ruling at the right hand of the Father. One day we'll come back, and as Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians, every eye will see him. And he will come back with his mighty angels in a flaming fire. You know, we think about the angels, uh, the caricature of these baby-faced cherubs shooting arrows in your lover on uh, Valentine's Day is very far away from the principle of what an angel is actually like. An angel is a warrior in Holy Scripture. Let me give you the example of Isaiah. Sennacherib has surrounded Jerusalem uh, with his Assyrian army. They are mocking uh, God and mocking the Israelites. Thus says, I'm picking up with Isaiah chapter 36 and th uh, uh, here. Thus says the king of Sennacherib, do not let Hezekiah, the king of Israel, deceive you, uh, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his hand from the king of, the, of Assyria? And then to go fast forward, then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians when the men rose up in the morning. Behold, all these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and turned home and lived at Nineveh. One angel killed 185,000 warriors of the Assyrians. That's the kind of people, that's the kind of being that is coming back uh, when Jesus Christ reveals himself. And it's just a small taste of what's going to happen in the end times. He comes in a flaming fire. The, of course, fire is, a, is symbolic of God's judgment. Uh, God is, uh, is uh, the prince, the king of all judgment. So he's even considered a consuming fire. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, Philip Arthur says this, Scoffers will find that very taunt will die on their lips when the one who has been concealed 
stands revealed in all his splendor. You will be vindicated. The church will be vindicated. All those saints who've been martyred, all those saints who've been hurt in the past will be vindicated at the revealing of Christ. And those who've made fun of you, those mockers will be silenced. I love the example of our Gideon earlier where someone was up on top of the gym about to commit suicide and a mocker flings the Gideon Bible up on the roof to make fun of it and it lands in front of the guy who was about to commit suicide and he picks it up. And he ends up eventually getting saved. That's the kind of justice that God loves. And what is God going to do? Or what is Christ going to do when he comes back with these angels? He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God. Retribution is to give full punishment. It's, uh, it can be translated justice or punishment, retribution, vengeance, and avenging a wrong. There will be absolutely no innocent party suffering in this. God will bring out retribution in a perfect, perfect manner. Uh, and the reason why, again, is because it, with his wrath, you've got to understand his love because he loves the church. The church is his bride. Paul says in Ephesians, Hus husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Uh, and, and, and yet what happens here is because he is offering that love, because he's expressed that love, because he has proven that love, he should be accepted. He should be believed. And yet people, they rebuff his love. They reject his love because they want to follow the idols of their own hearts. Romans chapter 1 says this, For the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of his world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen having understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse and their foolish heart was darkened. So you, people go out, they see this, um, the miracle of nature, the miracle of creation, the order of the universe, and they dismiss it as a cosmic accident because they are denying the truth that they know within their own heart there is a God and that God did create all this and that God expects something as a result of that. C.S. Lewis, uh, writing in The Problem of Pain, he says this, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or to those whom God in the end will say, thy will be done. You see, you reject God in this life, you reject Christ in this life, you poke fun of God's people in this life, uh, you don't want anything to do with God in this life, guess what, you're going to get your wish in the next life. And you will spend all eternity regretting that decision. The one who does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he get, Paul goes on to says, to reject God's command uh, uh, to believe uh, is a serious, serious, serious sin. Acts chapter 17, Paul says this, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has already set the time of the revealing of Jesus Christ and the coming of the angels with the fire of judgment. It is already set. It is as certain that that's going to happen as did December 7th, 1941 happened and the United States entered World War II. Just as set because God lives in the eternal present. There is no future for God. It is going to happen. He is going to come back. The question is, are you going to be ready for that? 
Are you going to be one of this going to receive the wrath? Or are you going to be the one that receives the blessing? But notice this, that it's those who do not obey the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is good news. It's the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God uh, by, uh, will save us by grace. But you have to have the faith to be able to understand that grace. Uh, and so we see this right. John three sixteen, the most popular verse, the one that's in every football. Is that guy with a colored afro still in the football games with the John three sixteen? I don't know if he's still around. He probably died 50 years ago. It's the last time I saw a professional game. John three sixteen says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, not whoever keeps a list of moral codes, not whoever's baptized, not whoever has never robbed a bank or killed anybody, not anyone who feels religious or whoever's a nice guy, but you have to believe in him. And the, and the in him that's defined by scripture, not your own imagination. Rick Phillips says this, unbelievers who refuse to accept Jesus in faith are judged precisely for spurning the love that God offered them. Everybody loves John 3.16. We love John 3.16, but you ought to keep reading John. You know how it close? closes? John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a good promise. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, him, abides on him. Folks, you've got to be a Christian to avoid this coming judgment. You've got to be a Christian to go to heaven. That is a very, very unpopular statement. We all want to think everybody's going to go, all nice people are going to go, but that's just not the case. Because your sins won't be forgiven unless you have the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 26 says this, and this is a warning for those of us who were raised in the church. And frankly, the churches of America are fruitful ground for evangelism. Because there are so many people who are social Christians, churchians, but not true, born-again believers. And yet, they may even go to churches where they hear the gospel every single Sunday, where the scriptures are read, where they sing praise to God. But for those people who really know the answer but are not converted, Hebrews 10 says this, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of Man and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and thus insulted the Spirit of grace? By refusing to believe the gospel, you mock Jesus' love. You think little of the blood that he spilt on the cross for us. As one commentator says, These hating God and spurning his offer of love are not always content to reject the God that they cannot see, but also persecute the church of God, which they can see. And that's why this is a form of comfort, as we'll look at. The, what happens to these people? This, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That, of course, is hell. Now, in, uh, in the Old Testament, Hades is often, uh, can, uh, can also include uh, the place of departed spirits, depart whether or not they're being punished or not. But in the New Testament, that term is always translated hell. hell. It is a literal, final place of fiery judgment for unforgiving sinners. Let me give you four aspects of hell. First of all, hell is eternal. There's a, there's a penalty here of eternal destruction. The suffering never ends. That idea for eternal is the same term used for heaven. So if heaven goes on forever, so does hell. You can't play fast and loose with these words and say, well, hell doesn't, they, they, you people just die. They don't actually go there. That's not the teaching of Holy Scripture. 
the angels in the book of Revelation see the smoke that says this, they cry out hallelujah, smoke comes up from her uh, from ever and ever and ever from the fiery pit, Revelation chapter 19. Jesus Christ said the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark chapter 9. Uh, when John the Baptist was rebuking hypocrites, he quoted Psalm 1 saying that there's a place reserved for them where the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. This is very unpopular, even in evangelical circles today. Even in evangelical circles today. Hell is immediate. There is no purgatory. I can't think of a worse doctrine than the doctrine of purgatory. There is no scriptural evidence to say that there is a testing period. Frankly, purgatory was a fundraising scheme for the medieval church. We will, for a certain amount of money, we will spring one of your relatives out of purgatory. I can't imagine anything more evil than to, to play fast and loose with people's eternal destiny just to make money. Hebrews chapter 9 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Die once, after this comes judgment. There's no mediating position. It's either heaven or hell. Hell is conscious, unbearable, torment, and misery. This idea of destruction does not refer to annihilation, as some have taught, but to ruination. It does not mean the cessation of existence, but rather the loss of all things that make existence worthwhile. As one commentator goes on, the loss will not cease to exist, but will experience forever a life of useless, hopeless emptiness and meaningful, a meaninglessness with no value, worth, accomplishment, purpose, goal, or hope. Revelation chapter 20 says this, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were also, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And it goes on to say, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, that is believers, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Y'all, this is heavy stuff. This is true stuff. This is the t clear teaching of scripture. You've got to do gymnastics around these verses to come up with any other alternative. But hell can be avoided. John chapter 8, 24, Jesus in rebuking uh, those who were trying to trap him says this, unless you believe that I am he, I am he, I am Messiah, the son of God, take away your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But if you do believe, your sins will be forgiven. Every single one of them, even the ones you have not yet committed. Again, because there is no future with God. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. So hell can be avoided. And where is hell? Again, it's away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. And some people would say, oh, well, you know, if I can get away from God, I can do whatever I want, right? I mean, they kind of picture hell as this big party, this opportunity not to have all these moral do's and don'ts and all these goody-two-shoe people around and, you know, and that kind of thing. I was recalled a quote from Mark Twain, I would choose heaven for the climate, but hell for the companionship. <laughs> like that's because you know, all the fun people are in hell is his principle. Well, get, what does James say? James says this in James 1.17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Any good that even the most rank pagan, the most violent persecutor of the church, any good that he experiences in this life, the taste of a meal, the companionship of someone that they love, uh, the, the beauty of a spring day, all of that good comes from God. When you're away from the presence of that God, there's none of that good. Even not the most basic 
comfort. Tim Keller says this, the biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom or good things of any sort. Since we are originally created for God's intimate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish and achieve our highest potential. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell. The loss of our capacity for giving or receiving love or joy. G.K. Beale notes, thus the punishment fits the crime and those that refuse to know God and want to separate from him in this life will be punished by being separated from God uh, in the next life. James Grant says this, this king did not come in fury and wrath during his first visit to the world. At that time, he came with humility, love and grace. He came to ransom his people from the enemy. He died on the cross for rebels. This first coming was a rescue mission. But the second coming will be war. We see that clearly portrayed in Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. And he was sat upon it, was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes were a flame of fire. Upon his head were many crowns. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We will sing, we will read about the triumphant entry. You remember how Jesus came into Jerusalem in his, when he was here before 2,000 years ago? Meek and mild on a donkey. That's not how he's coming back. He's coming back for war, on a war charger with the armies behind him. Folks, you want to be on the right side of that battle. You want to be a Christian. If you're not my my prayer is this is a wake-up call to you. And I'm passionate about this because this is one of the things that caused me to come to know the Lord myself. And in a sense, while I, I'm, we're all a little uncomfortable with this, in a sense, it really does suit me to scare the hell out of you. It really does. Now, that's a start. But if the Holy Spirit comes in, you will also soon find that you are madly in love with this same God who rescued from the, you from the pit of hell. So that's the, what he's going to happen to, what's going to happen to the unbelievers. But the good news is this, is God brings justice about, with, uh, about relief to believers. And we see this beginning in verse 6. Uh, same thing, principle here. For after all, it's only just for God. It's again, it's a self-evident truth that bad will be punished and good will be rewarded. And that's what we want. And he goes on here and he says, and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well. This idea of relief is a relaxation, a loosening, an easing, a freedom, a refreshment, a restoration or a rest. And Jesus really does do that. And you know what? He doesn't wait till you die before you realize that. He does that in this life as well. In the temporal sense, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus promised, come to me, all you here weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean, or learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
So, so salvation is a rest from the burdens of sin. When you become a Christian, there is a reason for everything. There is a purpose. There is a calling. There is a holy confidence that comes that your Father in heaven who loves you is ordering everything in your day. There is a joy that most of the people just don't know. It's not a joy that depends on your health or your relationships or on your money. It's a joy that comes from within. An overflowing joy because you receive the Holy Spirit. You're actually in Jesus Christ. You've been adopted into God's family. So there is this wonderful temporal rest, this wonderful temporal relief that comes. But there's also an eternal relief that comes. Revelation 21 says this, he will wipe every tear from your eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, no crying or pain. Folks, that's God's promise. That's God's promise. We've a lot of us have shed a lot of tears. A lot of us are going through a lot of pain. Nancy and I got back last night about 1030, 1045 from my class reunion in Columbia. I can't believe it's been 10 years. Uh, <laughs> And if you have you been back to like your 40 plus grass class, it's hard to recognize people. They're all fat, round and gray. And if it wasn't for the eyes, you wouldn't even know who they were, you know. And, and I sound like I'm judging others. I'm not. But it's a little hard, a little awkward. The nice thing is everybody's feeling the same, same awkwardness. But all I could think about was all these people I was 17 with. Of course, the men are still kind of there in their mind, but their bodies are not. And. And they're going. They're failing. There, were, uh, there was a little memorial set aside for the, the numbers of people who haven't made it this long. You just need to know that. I am, I'm actually not trying to discourage you. I'm trying to encourage you. You don't want to live in this world forever. We have something to look forward to, but you got to believe. And this is what Paul is trying to do. He's telling the Thessalonians, hold on, the fight's worth it. And God is just to see what's going on here. And he, when, he, when Christ comes back, he's going to be glorified in his saints on that day. Again, there's only two destinies, either heaven or hell. And uh, basically, our connection with Jesus Christ depends on where that destiny is going to be. In contrast to the terrible judgment of God inflicted on undeserving believers, the return of Christ will be joyful beyond human expression. Isn't that wild? It was like watching the O.J. Simpson trial. If you watch a picture of somebody, a bunch of people in a bar watching the outcome of that trial and the, ver and the jury came back and they gave the verdict, you would have half the bar celebrating and half the part just in shock. It'd be like watching a national championship football game. Half the people are in shock, half the people are just celebrating. And it's going to be so much more when Christ comes back. Those who love Christ now and will see him in the sky. They know the end has come. They know that eternity is there. Others will think, oh my goodness. Why didn't we listen to Dr. Campbell on March 26, 2023? 1 Peter 1.8 says this, Though you not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Philippians 3 20 through 21 says this, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power, which is he, he is able to subject all things to himself. And then he goes on to say that to be marveled at, at, uh, uh, at among all who believed. I love that. He's coming back to be marveled at. 
we don't marvel much. We're kind of, I mean, we've seen so many things. Those of you who grew up with the internet, there's hardly anything you haven't seen. It's hard to find things to marvel at, but you wait till he comes back and we will marvel at him. The apostle John saw something of this. Paul was out trying to kill the church when the apostle John was still worshiping Jesus, but he saw this in the Mount of Transfiguration, he and James and Peter. But he also saw it when Jesus came back. That same Jesus that he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration came back on the island of Patmos. And John said this in Revelation chapter 1, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his hair and his, uh, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I said to him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one, and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of hell. John saw that. John could hardly, how do you describe that? He's, he's struggling with the words because it was so supernatural. The interesting thing, John, if anybody on planet Earth knew Jesus Christ, it was John. He spent three years with him. That was his former state. That's the state that came in when he was on the donkey on Palm Sunday. This is his returning state when he's going to be revealed with his angels. John saw it. We will see it. And Paul says, this will be our experience. Christ will come with relief, with relief for the church to vindicate us, to stand up for us. For those of you who are taking it on the chin in your workplaces and in the classroom and in your neighborhood, he is going to stand up. I don't know what that's going to look like. I think about some of you who have struggled in the workplace, who, who were despised by some because you have a standard that's higher than others. And I think maybe in, before the great white seat of judgment, he's going to bring you out, his adopted child. And he's going to bring about all those people that persecuted you, made fun of you, who, who slandered you, who, who, who schemed behind you. And he's just going to vindicate you. And they're going to realize the terror of judgment they are under for poking in God's eye. His own adopted child. The testimony was believed. You just, they gave the gospel. The Thessalonians believed the gospel. They're going to be relieved. And they're not going to be, receive retribution. In Acts chapter 16, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Isn't it amazing how simple Christianity is? Now, they can't believe unless the Holy Spirit fills you first. But believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You know, before I was a Christian, I thought you had to do all this Christianity stuff. You know, when I got saved, I thought Baptists and Catholics were the most holy people out there. Because Baptists are always talking about Jesus and Catholics wore him around their neck. So, I mean, I was so ignorant. I didn't know anything. I didn't know the Presbyterians. I'm sorry to offend you. But, you know, that's just the way, or, 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 like, okay, being a Christian means you, you don't do, get drunk on Saturday night. That was kind of my definition. I didn't understand all this kind of stuff. But I tell you one thing, whatever it was, I wanted it. Whatever it is, you're going to want it too. But you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and, and you do, your sins are nailed to the cross, and you will receive relief and not retribution. James Grant summarizes by looking at the parables of Jesus. By the way, this is the, straight from the teaching of Jesus as well. The apostles represent the same thing Jesus taught. A lot of people think of Jesus as being the tiptoeing through the tulips and just loving people all the time, and he preached more on hell than just about anything else. James Grant summarizes the two places of eternal destiny. The parable of the wheat and tares explains for us that one day Jesus will judge everyone and the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God while the wicked will be delivered into that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 13. The parable of the net describes the kingdom of heaven as being a net thrown into the sea where the bad fish and the good fish and the bad fish are cast away. This is like the wicked who will be thrown into the fire furnace, Matthew 13. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins described the five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. The foolish virgins did not keep oil in their lamps, but the wise virgins did. When the bridegroom came, these wise virgins were ready and went up to him in the marriage feast. The foolish virgins were shut out of the feast, Matthew 25. The parable of the sheep and the goats describes the judgment as a time when Jesus will gather the nations and will separate them from one, another, uh, from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats, the sheep will inherit the kingdom, but the goats will be cursed forever. Suffer the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25. Those parables, choose two destinations, two, and no purgatory, two destinations, heaven or hell. That's it. That's it. Two kind of people, saved and non-saved, believing and unbelieving. It's not complicated. If you're not a Christian, this is probably not the first time you've been challenged to submit your life to Christ. But I hope that you get saved today because there does come a point in time where you won't have the opportunity to be saved. This idea of left behind and you can get saved after Jesus Christ comes back is not true. It's not biblical. So you need to commit. You need to get off the fence. You need to commit yourself to Jesus Christ. For those of you who are saved, you need to be serious about your relationship with God. That's really all that matters in this world. Everything else will be taken care of by God if you get that one purpose uh, set. Rebecca McLaughlin says this, If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying the price for ourselves. She goes on to say this, In the classic Russian novel, Eugene Onegin, a jaded aristocrat, Onegin meets an innocent young girl in the countryside. The girl, Tatiana, writes him a letter offering her love. Onegin does not reply. When they meet again, he turns her down. The letter was touching, he tells her, but he would soon grow bored of marriage to her. Years later, Onegin enters a St. Petersburg party and sees a stunningly beautiful woman. It's Tatiana. But she is now married. Onegin falls in love with her. She, he tries desperately to win her back, but Tatiana refuses him. Once the door was open, she offered him her love. Now it is shut. Onegin, uh, uh, if we were accept Jesus Christ now, we will live with him forever in the fullness of life that we cannot imagine. If we reject him, one day he will reject us and we will be utterly devastated. The offer doesn't go on forever and ever and ever. Today, as Paul says, is the day of your salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So I encourage you, as Romans 10, 11 says, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
Uh, I know this is heavy. It's been a longer service. One of the reasons why we kept it so cold earlier was because one of the first signs of hypothermia is getting sleepy. We wanted you to be afraid to fall asleep uh, during the sermon. But the sermon's over with now. Now you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Believer, are you going to praise the Lord and wonder at him now? Unbeliever, are you going to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I'm going to close this in prayer. And if you want to get saved, if you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to repent from your sins, we'll have somebody over here in this conference room right after the service that will help lead you and help get you on the road to discipleship. For those of you online, if you would contact us, we would be happy to speak to you as well. But I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray two prayers. And I want you to affirm these prayers in your heart if you can say them with your heart. Father, we do come before you. We praise you for your word. Uh, and, and we thank you, God, for the hard passages and the, and the encouraging passages, for the challenging passages, and in a sense, the easy passages. We praise you for both your love and for your wrath. We it would be hard for us to love a God who doesn't look after his children. So I pray, God, for those who know you, that they would be serious about the things of God. That before they know it, they're going to be going to their 43rd high school reunion. And they're going to be people that aren't there. And that they will one day, and sooner than we think, will see the face of our Lord. If not, we will soon see him coming in the fire and with his angels in the clouds. Where we will wonder at him. And Lord, also I pray for those who are not Christians, that they would submit their lives to Jesus Christ, that they would let go of the idols of this world. They would recognize the fact that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, and that they would come to know you. We thank you, God, so much for your holy word. We thank you so much for giving us one day in seven we could gather together as the people of God to worship you. And we pray, Lord God, that you would do our part to take this gospel to those who need to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.